reading your Bible and praying are difficult. I wonder what your reading the Bible and prayer life actually look like. Because if you're, if you're upsetting hell, then you're going to have some opposition. And the devil likes to mess with your mind. Listen, we got to get at, the devil doesn't care if we come and assemble and have church. The devil wasn't knocking on the disciples' door when they had it shut for fear of the Jews. He wasn't getting in like, i got to interfere with this service. And you know what our fear has done to us? Our fear has made us lock our doors. It has. It's made us lock our doors. And I'm not talking about the church doors, although we do do that. We do, we do do that. Once service starts, we lock the doors because, you know, people in the world are crazy and they try to bring guns in and stuff, and, and that's stupid. But fear has made us lock our doors metaphorically and spiritually as well. And what I'm talking about is we come into our space and we have our church and we let the world have its space. And, we, we, and like, it's like we, the world, we know the world's going to be the world and we're going to be the church. And what we do is we begin to separate ourselves further and further from the world. And I'm not just talking about spiritually or holiness, because you're supposed to do that. I'm talking about in proximity, too. How many of you have unchristian friends? A fair amount. A fair amount. I'm going to tell you this. A lot of people don't. A lot of people, as they move and they become Christians, you begin to cut off those relationships and sometimes it's good because sometimes they're influencing you in a bad way and you don't want that. You want to grow in holiness and grace. But also, what we do when we separate proximity is we remove all the light from their life. We remove all the light from their life. So we push these people further away and we're like, oh, the world can have its space and we're going to have our space in church. How many of you talk about Jesus outside the church walls with unchristian people? Listen, I'm, I know I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, but the point that I'm wanting to illustrate here is that a lot of times what we do is we live in this contradiction where we have faith, but we operate in fear. We have faith, but we operate in fear. And so even though we have faith and we believe in the resurrection, we still live our lives scared of things hindering our reputation, scared of people judging us or not responding favorably. How many of you have actively shared the gospel with somebody in the past six months with an unbeliever? It becomes difficult because we live in this space where we want people to like us and we want people, we want to get along with one another, but we don't want to rock the boat. And so what happens is we isolate ourselves, we lock our doors, and we keep our Christianity in here, and l rather than letting it get out there. And here's, here's a great, uh, great and unfortunate truth, is that sometimes, sometimes pastors, they get fearful of society, and they get fearful of people responding in a negative way, and so when the world and people in the church start saying things that are inaccurate, we don't have anybody like the Apostle Paul standing up and saying, I withstood Peter to his face because he was to be blamed. Listen, the end of Galatians 2 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because here you have monuments, Peter and Paul, 
And they're the pillars in the church. And Paul isn't even recognized as a pillar yet. Nowadays, we say Peter and Paul, they're it. But back then, it was Peter and James and John. Paul even says so in Galatians. He said they were esteemed to be pillars. But then he says what they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't respect persons. (laughs) Because, you know, Paul's a smart aleck. I like Paul. But anyway, (laughs) Peter, Peter was way up here. Peter was way up here. Peter was way up here, recognized as a pillar in the church. And Paul was like, I had to stand up against him because he was to be blamed. And he says that he was carried away when everybody was together, that he was eating with the Gentiles, but when he heard that James and the circumcision were going to come, he he separated himself because he didn't want to be judged inappropriately. And so then Jews dissimilated themselves with him And so much so that Paul's ministry partner, missionary partner, Barnabas, was carried away with their dissimulation. And he says, and when I saw that they walked not according to the truth of the gospel, I confronted them. Where are the Pauls at today? I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I'm saying when you've got all of these people in the church that are just caving in to society and to culture and to the innuendos and just letting the world take over and control the church, you've got all this stuff going on. Where are the people standing up saying, look, this is enough is enough? Where are the pastors and the preachers standing up saying, no, this is how you define a woman? This is, this is how God made things. Listen, I've read the statement by the NSA, National Security Administration, and they said that there is a differentiation between sex and gender. That sex is male and female, and it's binary. But gen and for medicinal purposes, binary, but gender is a social construct. I'm like, where are the people standing up opposing this saying, this is the biggest load of crock I've ever heard in my life? So we, we, we have faith, but we let fear shut us in. We let fear shut us in. And I think that enough time has passed, and I'm not the only person that says this, but I think enough time has passed and the church has had the doors locked long enough metaphorically speaking, that we need to start standing up for the things that are right. And we need to start standing up even if it makes people uncomfortable, even if it makes people dislike us. Paul says all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I think a big portion of the reason that the church in America doesn't suffer persecution the way it does in the rest of the world is that the church in America just isn't living godly as they should. And I'm not talking about not eating certain things. I'm not talking about not saying certain words. And we get bent out of shape over cuss words, but we let, but we watch whatever we want on TV. <laughs> or we would get bent out of shape over, you know, this, that, and the other, and we kind of talk about it amongst ourselves. But where are the people that are actually standing up calling sin, sin, and calling black, black, and white, white, and calling women, women, and men, men? Like, where are the, they at? And there have been a few I'm not degrading everybody. I'm just saying that it's the minority in the church that is standing up for the truth of the gospel. Because for a long long period of time, the doors have been locked. I, I like church history. And I'm laboring this point for a reason. I like church history. And I read throughout church history where you had preachers 
standing up to kings and saying, this isn't right. I mean, I think about John the Baptist. There's a Bible, a Bible picture telling Herod that he shouldn't be having a relationship with his brother's wife. And <laughs> it, it ended with a, little, with a little unfortunate circumstance in his life, a little bump in the road. But what I'm saying is, is that's when faith dominates fear. There comes a point in time when we have to overwhelm the paradox or the contradiction in our life. Because you know what? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And if we're operating, we've got faith over here and we believe in Christ and we believe in the resurrection, but then we're paying attention and letting fear dictate our actions and dictate our choices and forcing us to lock the doors and keep our mouth shut. Because, hey, your mouth, a uh, biblical picture, um, your mouth is a door, it's a gateway. You know, so you got that door shut and locked because you don't want to be politically incorrect or to be sued or whatever. Listen, those days have got to come to an end, and we've got to let faith dominate. Amen? Anyway, that was a little bit longer than I intended to pen, spend on there. But then you've got Jesus showing up. In Revelation 3, Jesus stands outside the door of the church, or outside the church, and he knocks on the door, and he's like, if you open, I'll come in. And I love that picture because it's like the church has to let Jesus in. But then I also love this, that the doors are locked and Jesus just shows up in the middle. Like he just barges on in. And I'm like, sometimes he knocks and you have to open and sometimes he just shows up and wreaks havoc. My prayer is that Jesus would just show up in Faith Memorial and just wreak some havoc. Listen, I am, I, I am a big boy. I, I, I have adult-sized clothes. I can take being humbled a little bit. And if Jesus wants to show up and humble me, Praise God, let him do it, because I know what comes after that. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will exalt you in due time. Humility is the way to exaltation. And I really, really pray that Jesus would show up in the midst of our church. I'm not saying he's not here. I'm not saying that we don't have Jesus. And, but I'm saying that in the fullness of his presence, show up and just wreak some havoc. And you know, the thing is, can I, can I confess something to you guys? Can I be honest? All right, here's, here's a little bit of honesty from me. All right, this isn't a gross sin, so <laughs> you can breathe. You can, <sighs> listen, the, <laughs> when I say I'm confessing something, I'm not confessing a gross sin, okay? I wouldn't be preaching if I was operating in gross sin. No, but here's a confession. Confession on my part is, Sometimes when we, have, when we do the canned worship, I told you I believe God led us into this season for a reason. But sometimes when we do the canned for worship, sometimes it frustrates me a little bit. And I have this, this thought that crosses my mind where I'm like, Lord, we, we can't have a move of God with, a, with, a, with an album playing. And there is no biblical basis for that whatsoever. But it's a tradition that had been so ingrained in my mind that, that it, I have this cycle run through my head and it's like, well, how can you have a move of God if you're having to play a YouTube song? Why can't you? Like, does God have this list of like prerequisites? Well, you got to have a worship team before you can have a move of God. No? God doesn't have a list of prerequisites and requirements that you have to have before he says, no, I'm going to move. 
other than where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'll be in the midst of them. Like, that's all he needs is people that sincerely want to experience and encounter God, and he will be there, and they will encounter God. And so I just ask myself, why do we feel that we have to have the trimmings and the trappings? You know what I mean? Has anybody else thought that? Just be honest. Let's be honest. Let's, let's have a little, little bit of a conversation back and forth. Does anybody else, when you're listening to canned worship, you're like, man, this is great, but this song would be better if there were people up here. I, I like having people in the house because I like when they can sing the song and then they're like, man, we could just re-sing that chorus again. That'd be great. And you can't really do that with a YouTube song or like a canned worship song. But that doesn't dictate whether or not God will move in the church. If anything, this can become a hindrance. And I think for a long time in the church, it has become a hindrance because we're like, we need the best preachers, we need the best worship team. And yes, I I hit on this a lot because I'm trying to break something off of me and off of you guys, is that we have to get past this and get to a place to where, you know, some of the greatest movements in church history happened because they opened up a hymnal and sang together, and there was no canned music, there was nobody up here, they just opened up a book and sang. They had some, well, they may have had somebody, like, set the the pace or the tempo of the song, um, (laughs) or set the key so everybody could try to match, but I don't know, it probably sounded like a bunch of dying cats half the time, because there are a lot more people that can't sing than people that can sing, I'm just being honest, just being honest, but I really think that the day should, has come where we need Jesus to come in the midst of the church and wreak some havoc. Wreak some havoc with our religion, wreak some havoc with our traditions, because the Word of God says that our traditions nullify the Word of God. Our cares and concerns for this world, our religiosity, chokes the Word of God. We need to get some of that stuff broken off of us. Get some of that stuff broken off of us and get back to the simplicity of the gospel. And only in the simplicity. Sandy, can I pick on you for a second? Can I pick on you for a second? She said yes. Unrecorded, she said yes. Hey, the past couple of weeks, you've been, you've been dealing with some stuff, haven't you? You've been scared at all the past couple of weeks? Oh, yeah, been scared. Listen, when you were scared the past couple of weeks and literally all hell was coming against you and your family, was there ever once a time where you said, I really just need a worship team? Was there? I mean, did you think about somebody in a certain way that they performed a song or a certain way that somebody spoke or like their eloquence? Or did, what helped you? Was it this? So it was more about Maybe the lyrics of a song or maybe the scripture behind the song, that was what helped you? That's what I thought. See, the reason I ask that is because we want all these things, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having nice things and desiring things to be pretty and to sound nice. But when push comes to shove and the rubber hits the road and all hell breaks loose, it isn't going to be having a good worship team that gets you through. It isn't going to be having an eloquent preacher that gets you through. It's going to be opening up your Bible and being able to know what a verse means. 
It's going to be able to know where to look to find a verse to get you through. That's what's going to bring you through when all hell comes loose. That's what's going to hit the fear head on and bring you through and allow faith to have the preeminence over fear. It's not going to be, oh, we had a great worship team and we had a service and everybody clapped their hands and stomped their feet and I even seen a couple people dancing in front. That's fun and I love that stuff. But when hell comes, that's not what's going to push you through. Chuck and Trish, you guys went through some hell, haven't you? Was it how good of a worship team we had is what brought you through? What brought you through? The prayer of the saints? Worshiping yourself? Amen. Yep. That's it. Worship, prayer. But it was what you had in you. What you were doing. And what the people were doing in the congregation. It wasn't the performance. It wasn't the eloquence of a preacher. But see, these are the things that we highlight in church. And they're like, we got to have. we got to have an eloquent preacher and we got to have a great worship team. But that's not what's going to matter when hell comes. That's going to leave you with your doors locked for fear. But having somebody come up here and say, I'm going to put in you, I don't care if you hate me, I'm going to make sure that you understand what this says and where to go when hell comes at your face. That's what's going to get you through. And it doesn't matter if it's canned worship, if it's a hymn book, if there's a worship team, or if there's a preacher up here that stutters every three or four words, or if there's somebody up here that's as eloquent as Winston Churchill. It doesn't matter. What matters is that somebody says, I want to put the gospel in you. That's what matters. That's what will conquer fear. That's what will give faith the preeminence. And see, when Jesus comes and wreaks havoc, you know what the first thing he says is? Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Because he comes in and he recognizes they're in a state of fear. He couldn't walk through the front door. But you know when the front doors are locked, you know who else can't walk in? The lost. The Jews can't get in, sure. But neither can the people who need to get in. Fear locks the doors on our churches and on our hearts. But Jesus comes in and he wreaks havoc. And he says, peace be unto you. But you want to know something amazing? He says it twice. He says it twice. And the first time he says it, what's he do? He says, peace be unto you. What's he do? Look in your Bibles. Don't just take my word for it. What's he do? He shows them his hands and his sides. He shows them. He makes them or invites them to come into contact with the resurrected Christ. But not just the resurrected Christ, but the crucified and resurrected Christ. See, when Paul says, I was convinced or resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the whole point is the crucified and the resurrected Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I want you to come into contact with the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see all of it. And that's the foundation for the peace. Faith, what's peace mean? Nothing missing, nothing broken. Anxiety and fear is a lack of peace because it shows that something is missing or something is broken. Namely, what's missing in fear? The peace of God. But I want to ex- share something with you. I want to share something with you. Did you know that... <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. Did you know, if I ask you what is the opposite of fear, what would you say? Peace. 
Let me ask again, what's the opposite of fear? Tranquility, oh, there's a good word. What's the opposite of fear? Jesus, oh, that's a good one. You know what the Bible teaches is the opposite of fear? Love. Love. Perfect love casts out all fear. He that hath fear has not been made perfect in love because fear hath torment. Love is the opposite of fear. See, people say love and hate are opposites. No, hate is a byproduct of love. Hate is a byproduct of love. If I love babies, I hate abortion. If I love marriage, I hate divorce. If I love people, I hate when they die or when they suffer because I love them. I care about them. I want good for them. I don't want bad for them. Hate is a byproduct of love. It's not its opposite. Fear is the opposite of love because fear is something missing or something broken, namely that love that should be there, that love that provides peace and comfort. So fear, anxiety is showing there's a missing aspect of love. And when Jesus invites them to come into contact with the crucified and resurrected Christ, he's inviting them to come into contact with the love of God because guess what? The motivation and the groundbreaking revelation found in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ goes all the way back to that covenant of redemption that we talked about when God made a covenant within himself. The motivating factor of that covenant was love. That God loved the thing that he hadn't even made yet. And it induced him or motivated him to create a plan of adoption, a plan of atonement where we would be redeemed. So coming into contact with the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ is coming into contact with the expression. I would say epitome, but epitome implies a lesser effect than the actual substance. So it's not the epitome, it's the express image of the love of God. The manifestation of the love of God is the crucified and risen Lord. And it has to be both. A crucified Lord reconciles us back to God, but it doesn't save us. It pays the penalty for our sin, but it doesn't provide us a life to come into. And you can't have a resurrection without the crucifixion. And the resurrection provides an invitation for us to experience that eternal and abundant life that Jesus offers us. So he's inviting them to come into contact with his love. That he doesn't want to just pay for our sins and save us from punishment, but he wants to invite us into an eternal relationship with him. That should bring about joy. And see, what happens is the disciples, this is the first layer of peace. This is a spiritual peace. And when the disciples see Jesus, it says they were glad. You know, I preached this passage, not the same message, but I preached this passage a couple years ago when I was still in depression. And I preached this whole passage, and I never made mention of glad, the gladness. It says that they were glad. I preached this passage, and I didn't make mention of gladness. And the other day, this past week, I came home and I told Faith, I said, you know, I said, we do a thing. Faith and I do a thing. It's reprogramming our mind. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit of our, our business. How many of you guys struggle with anxiety? Be honest. You, have, you struggle with anxiety at times. I'm not saying you let it run your life. I know I'm preaching against anxiety. But how many of you struggle with sadness? How many struggle with depression? How many struggle with fear? How many of you struggle with a lack of hope? How many of you don't struggle at all with anything? Find a new pastor, because I can't help you. <laughs> just being honest. Listen, listen. It was just a, I didn't know we went Baptist all of a sudden. Raise your hand. <laughs> I want to say yes, but I can't move. <laughs> 
I can't raise my hand. It's against the law. <laughs> no wonder everybody's squirming in their seat. They're not really squirming. They're just trying to praise the Lord and they can't. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, I forgot what I was even saying. Everybody struggles. Listen, I may not have hit what you struggle with. How many of you struggle with doubt? How many of you struggle with energy, with motivation, with a desire to get up and to go? How many of you struggle with reading your Bible and praying? Like, look, I could hit it eventually. If I got to the, and I kept going long enough, I would hit some of the things you struggle with. And if you don't think you struggle with anything, then you need to go to your bathroom and find the biggest mirror that you can and look in it and say, I am lying to myself. Because you struggle. You ain't Jesus. You struggle. And if you don't think you struggle, it's because you ain't trying hard enough. So, of course, you don't struggle if you ain't trying. I am, Lord, help me, Jesus. <laughs> anyway, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Anyway, <laughs> look, it says they were glad. It says they were glad. And one of the things that faith was delivered from five, six years ago was anxiety. I'm talking crippling anxiety. And she can give a testimony about that that will blow your socks off. And if you're not wearing socks, put some on so they can get blown off. But she was delivered from anxiety. And it was awesome. And I walked in depression. And I was delivered from depression. And it was awesome. But you know, just because you get deliverance doesn't mean the enemy doesn't form weapons and try to bring that very same thing back on you to bring you again under bondage. That's why Peter says if you're entangled again in bondage because he knows that the enemy is going to try to bring those things that have worked in the past against you again and put you under that same bondage that you've already been under. And when it says that they were glad, I, I realized that that was the thing in this passage that the Holy Spirit highlighted to me the most. And it blew me away. And so faith and I, this thing that we do is every night we reprogram our brains. So just so you know, a little psychology for you. Your brain is a record player and an amplifier. It is a record player and an amplifier. What it does is your brain, whatever you intentionally think about or process, your brain records that. And then when you're not thinking or trying not to think, it replays and amplifies those things that you have chosen to think about. So if you spend your time looking at your account book, worrying about how you're going to pay the bills, you ever wonder why you're not thinking about anything? The thing that pops in your mind is bills. You ever wonder why you're sitting in church and you're worried about Monday morning and going back to work? It's because you've been fretting and thinking about it so much throughout the week that when your brain is put on idle, it replays and amplifies those things you've chosen to think about. That's why Paul in Philippians says, think on these things. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is good, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is a good report, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things and the God of peace who, who shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Like, that's the things that, the reason the Bible says that is because if you think on those things, when your brain has downtime, it will replay and amplify those things. So we do this thing where every night we tell each other, say three things that made you happy that day. Not spiritual, just happy. Just three things that made you happy. And like yesterday, mine was 
one of mine and, and hers was we introduced the kids to Star Wars. We watched episode four, A New Hope, which is the real first Star Wars. It's just, but anyway, we, we watched episode four with the kids. Asher and Claire loved it. So anyway, that was one of my things that made me happy. So we do three things that made you happy, and then we follow that with three ways you saw God work in your life that day. Three ways you saw God work in your life. And what you will find happens, and so we, we introduce this kids. So at dinner, we make the kids say one thing that they thought ma- that made them happy, what was their favorite thing. And Asher, you know, he, he likes to be complete, so he'll say, well, what's one thing that made you, made you sad? And we're like, no, 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 nope, nope. There's no place for that here because we're reprogramming our brains to think about what makes us happy and how do we see God at work in our life. And trust me, if you do that, it will change the way that you think and change the way that your brain and your downtime operates. Like, you are a spirit, but you also have a soul and live in a body, so you need to know how to gain mastery over these other things. And this is just another form of devotion, and so that's something we do. And so when I was talking to Faith, I was like, I really saw God at work in my life because when I read the word gladness, I realized I preached this message a couple years ago and I didn't even think about the word gladness because I wasn't, it was foreign to me. The idea of gladness, true gladness was a foreign concept to me because I had been in depression for so long that I didn't even understand what that was. But now, because God has delivered me and gave me the baptism of joy when I read this, that was the first thing I noticed. And the Holy Spirit brought that out of the passage most because it's like they came into contact with the crucified and resurrected Lord. And what was the byproduct? Gladness, joy, this overflowing happiness. Listen, happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is an involuntary response that comes on you because of a situation or circumstance. Joy is a choice that you choose to let predominate whatever the circumstance is. And I want to teach you something. We're going to keep on the psychology vein. I've shared this with you guys before, I believe. But do you know that joy is a product of love? Joy is a product of love. And do you know that how perfect love casts out fear? Perfect love casts out fear because perfect love produces joy, and joy is what conquers fear and anxiety. The entire book of Philippians is based on this premise. You know the book of Philippians is the 50th book in the Bible. It's the book of Jubilee. It's called the Epistle of Joy. That's what the whole book is called because it says rejoice and joy more than any other book in the Bible. Let me rephrase that because I haven't counted. It says rejoice and joy at a more frequent rate than any other book in the Bible. And it's actually uncharacteristic of Paul's writing. Do you guys know this? It's uncharacteristic of how Paul normally writes. Paul doesn't normally say every time he turns around, in this that your joy may be made full, in this I joy and rejoice with you, and you also joy and rejoice with me. Rejoice, I say, and again I say rejoice. Like it's constant throughout the book of Philippians. And do you want to know the reason? God gave this to me two years ago, almost, a year and a half. You know the reason? Because Paul talks, and he gives context clues in Philippians, that he had received a report from them. There's, through the context clues, you can see he received a report from them, and his letter was an answering to the report that he had received. 
And so he wanted to send Timothy, but he couldn't. And so he sent Epaphroditus, and he said, I'll send Timothy a little bit later, and I hope to come also. But he realized he had to answer this. And throughout the book of Philippians, what you see is you see Paul answering these questions that aren't there. And it's my belief that that's because he had received a report from them and they were questions that they had. You know, he's like, hey, yeah, I'm in bonds, but don't worry, I trust this is a turn to my deliverance. Yes, there are people that preach the gospel out of, you know, strife and contention, but the others preach it out of love. The one, you know, preach it out of contention, not sincerely hoping to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing I'm set for the defense of the gospel. Like, he's answering these questions that, they, that haven't been asked in the epistle. Because I believe he's answering the report that he had received from them. And what that report shows in the way that he answers those is that the Philippians were scared. They were scared in an anxious church. If you don't believe me, read it and look and see how Paul deals with anxiety. And I never got this, but I was preaching a series on the book of Philippians. And I, I'm going to embarrass Faith again because she's awesome. You guys have no idea how awesome she is. So watch her turn three shades of red. Woman of God, amazing. But anyway, I was, um, I was planning a, a message on Philippians, and I was like, God, there's just some things that just don't make sense to me. And I walked in, and Asher had his first loose tooth. His first loose tooth. And I mean, it was really loose. Like, it was almost ready to go, but it still had part of that root where if you pull it, it's a disaster. So you can't pull it, and it's almost loose. Well, Asher, the devil has tried to put anxiety on him that used to be on my wife, and we've had to actively battle against that spiritually. And so he lost it. I don't know if you can ask 150 to 200 questions about what happens when you lose a tooth, but he did, by golly. <laughs> and he was asking questions, what happens if I swallow it? Will it cut me up inside? Will a new tooth grow? Like, will, you know, will I have to poop out a tooth? Like, he, he was asking these questions. Like, what happens if I, I take a bite and it comes out? Like, am I going to bleed to death? Like, he's asking all these questions about what happens when he loses a tooth. And he is distraught, crying, like distraught, experiencing the flood of fear and anxiety. And Faith just sits there and she answers every one of his questions, one after another. And I'm like, dear Lord, this is incredible i walk away and come back 30 minutes later and she's still answering questions and and i just walk away because i'm like she's got this I'll, I'll mess it up so and then i'm standing in the kitchen and we had this sunroom and you could see where they were sitting at and all of a sudden he starts laughing actually she starts laughing and then he starts laughing and it hit me and god god just boom like a ton of bricks what she had done was she had met him where he's at. It's called attunement. These are psycho actual psychological truths. It's called attunement. It's when you take your brain and you verbally and non-verbally communicate and empathize with where someone's at and you match them. And then because you are at a more emotionally mature place than them, you can bring them to where you are or at least bring them out of the mess that they're in. This is a psychological phenomenon. It's true. And she attuned with him, walked him through his fear by answering his questions, and brought him back to a place of joy. And joy conquered that fear and anxiety. And so Paul, when he's answering these questions to the Philippian church, he's attuning to them 
And then he's bringing them back to a place of joy. That's what we say. Anytime we get upset in the house, that's always my, catch, my, my go-to phrase is, okay, we process this. Now let's return to joy. Let's return to joy. And so when Jesus comes in and says, peace be unto you, there's a lot of stuff being communicated here. He lets them come into contact with the resurrected Christ, the crucified and resurrected Christ, the manifestation of love. Because in that love, coming into contact with pure, unadulterated, unconditional love, it leads to joy, and joy is the foundation for the conquering of anxiety and fear. And guess what? Guess what he does? He then says it again. Peace be unto you. Because there's a whole other dimension of peace. Listen, the peace that you get from coming in contact with a crucified and resurrected Savior, you have a spiritual peace that can flood over into a soulful peace. But Jesus wants to equip you with the tools to walk in that peace. And so the, out of that, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is this spiritual entity coming into you that is going to equip you with the tools necessary so that you have the ability to return to joy. And return to peace. And to conquer that fear and anxiety. That's good news, church. That's good news, church. But now, here's the crux. There's a responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And he has a responsibility. He gives the church a responsibility. He says, as the Father is sending me, so I send you. We're sent, church. We're supposed to be sent. And fear keeps us locked inside with the doors shut. But coming into contact with love and letting that love produce joy conquers fear and anxiety and opens up the door so we can be sent. Now real quick, I want to share something with you. This is what I preached when I preached this a couple years ago. The key word in this phrase, is, in this expression, it's the shortest word in here, and apart from God, Jesus, and the Father, and then the Holy Spirit being dressed, this is the most important word in this passage. Does anybody want to guess what the word, most important word is? In the whole passage, apart from the names of God, what the most important word is? Peace? That's an important one, but it's not the most important. It's one of the shortest words. It's two letters. As, as, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. As my Father sent me, even so I send you. Jesus is sending us in the same way that God sent him. And so you ask yourself, okay, how did God send Jesus? And then we could spend a whole series on this. I'm not going to, don't freak out. But we could. We could spend a whole series on this. As my Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So how did God send the Father? And I'm going to give you four points, four, four little points. First of all, not one of the four points, but the foundation, love, joy, peace. Right? Relationship. But how did the Father, how did the Father send Jesus? How did the Father send Jesus? As a baby. He did send him as a baby. And he had to grow in that. Here's the first point. Are you ready for it? It's a culmination of everything we just said. Relationship. As a relationship. Out of the outflow of the relationship is how God, the Father, sent Jesus. Out of the covenant of redemption, 
There's no deficit in God. God's like, it's not God. I'm going to die if I don't have worshipers. Listen, God is not Tinkerbell, okay? Tinkerbell, if you don't believe in me, I'll cease to exist. God is not like that. We were watching the Santa Claus series, and they're like, why are you losing your magic? People are stopped believing in me. The spirit of Christmas is dying. I'm like, what a crock of baloney. Like, God isn't like that. There's no deficit in God. Whether people worship him or whether they don't, he's got billions of gajillions of angels, if those are even words, which are not, worshiping him. He doesn't need anything from you. It is not like God is waiting. Oh my gosh, if they don't worship me. Like, then sometimes in evangel- evangelistic circles, we paint God that way. Like God is this weak, little, effeminate character that's like, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> it's God! <laughs> I mean, come on. He doesn't need you. He wants you. He desires to have a relationship with you because he delights in you. But listen, I've said this before. You're going to glorify God either way. If you come to him and surrender and repent, you're going to glorify him because of his love and because of his mercy and because of the outflow of how good he is. But if you don't, you're going to glorify him because he's just and because he won't let sin go unpunished and because he will not allow a transgression and someone committing spiritual treason against him to go undealt with. So you're going to glorify his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. You're going to glorify God either way. You get to choose how you glorify him, but you will glorify him either way. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And so when God the Father sends Jesus, he sends him out of the outflow of relationship. A lot of people are going and standing up in pulpits preaching the gospel, and they don't know more know Jesus than the man on the moon. There are a lot of people that stand behind pulpits, some of them even on TV, doing all kinds of sorts of crockamamie bull, and they don't know Jesus. I listened to a guy the other day, and they were asking, I'm not going to name names because that doesn't help, I'm just going to tell you the situation, the issue. I listened to a guy preach the other day, and they asked him, they said, how is it that Muslims and atheists listen to you? You have more unchristian viewers than Christian viewers. How is that possible? And he says, well, I just teach these life principles that anyone can do, and they, they lead to having a better life, and they lead you know, to, um, you know, to c- accomplishing your dreams. And it's like, and then he's like, well, don't you care about you know, revivals and things like that? And he's like, no, not really. Not so much. You know, we, we care about helping people have a good life. It's like, great, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You have no idea of who he is. Other people standing up there and pretending to cut their hand and hold their own blood over a cup and saying this is, this is communion. They don't no more know Jesus than the man on the moon. People saying, you know, they say we're blab it and grab it and we blabbed it and grab it and now we have it. They don't know Jesus. Listen, I could go on and on and on, but there's all kinds of people that are standing in places like this and they have no relationship with Jesus because they don't preach Jesus. They preach their philosophy and their ideology and take advantage of the people that are actually trying to find the truth and exploit the gospel and then slap Jesus' name on it. They don't know him. They don't know him. So it's relationship. Don't worry, I'm bringing this to a close. I'm not going to spend forever. The The next point is he sends him as a baby. 
you know what the word indigenous means? It's a big word. Indigenous, you know, you think about like indigenous peoples or indigenous tribes. It just means of that way, like of the people, like made in the people. One of the things I love about missions, true missions, is missions used to be we're going to go and put an American-style building church in a tribe. So you got all these tribes living in teepees, these people living in teepees, and in the middle you got this little white church with a steeple on the top. And it's like, that's not missions. <laughs> like, that's colonization. Missions is supposed to be, and true missions, and thankfully the church has kind of got to this place, is you go in and you raise up and disciple leaders in that tribe and let them pastor a church. And the church looks like all their other architecture. That's like true missions. And God didn't just appear on a mountaintop and say, do this, 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 and this, and I'll see you in, you know, a couple millennia. No, he actually came and was born of a virgin and took flesh upon himself and was walking among us so that he could show us how to do it. So he sent him as and of the people. He also sent him prayerfully because Jesus was a man of prayer. And then the last point is he sent him in power. Jesus was filled with the Spirit at his baptism. So you've got relationally, you've got indigenous, you've got prayerfully, and you've got empowered. And it spells the word ripe because I'm cool and I had to make it spell a word. But (laughs) anyway, so there you go. That's how God sent, the Father sent Jesus. He sent him out of the overflow of the relationship. He sent him as of the people, as and of the people. A lot of times we go and we try to say, well, if you're not looking like us and talking like us and dressing like us and acting like us, you're not a Christian. That's not the case. Sometimes we just put religion on there and say, this is Christianity. It's like, no, it's not. It's just religion that you're slapping Christians, Christianity onto. And prayerfully, man, we've got to start praying more. As a church, as a people, as a body, as a universal church, we have got to start praying more. And I'm not talking about just coming to prayer meetings. I'm not talking about just coming to prayer meetings, because that's great. I'm talking about praying as individuals, praying as individuals. And some of you guys are awesome prayer warriors. I'm not taking away from that. But I'm just saying the church universal at large, we have got to start praying more. And when I say more, I'm not just talking about time. I'm talking about depth of prayer, because sometimes people pray for two and three hours, and it's just artificial and surface level. And sometimes there's people that pray for three and four and five minutes while they're washing dishes and it's got more depth and more spirituality and more holiness than the person that just spent four hours in prayer. I don't care how long you spend in prayer. I care about how deep you go and how authentic your prayer is. And then the last point, obviously, is receiving the Holy Ghost and going out empowered. So here's the end-all, end-all message. Can Can I do that, the takeaway? The takeaway is that the church has been existing in this paradox of faith and fear for a long time. And that until we come into the fullness and the contact of the crucified and resurrected Savior, let that contact with love produce joy in us and gladness in us that will overcome that fear and anxiety. We're never going to get out of this contradiction, never going to get out of this mixed balance. And as long as we're stuck, a double-minded man is unstable in all all his ways. As long as we're stuck in this contradiction and this paradox, the doors are going to remain locked and we're never going to accomplish the purpose for God that God has sent us for. Because if those doors are locked, what do you got to do to get out of a locked door? You got to unlock it. So they were stuck in the room. Yeah, people were stuck on the outside, but they were also stuck in because of their fear. And so until we can get past this fear through love, which produces joy, uh, which overcomes anxiety, until we can get out of that, we're not going to go anywhere. That's the prerequisite for initiating and fulfilling the Great Commission. Amen? All right, let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for an awesome opportunity to come into your house and to preach your word and to listen to your word. Lord, I pray right now that something in the message, Lord, was not of me, that it was filled with your spirit and that it was able to produce an everlasting change in the lives of everyone here. Lord, let it be a motivating word that empowers us and encourages us to go out and to spread your gospel and to share your love and your faith and the things that you have accomplished for us. And Lord, let your glory take over. Lord, let your presence be in this church and let it be on these people and let them be presence bearers and take your presence out in the community and the different circles that they um, exist in. And Lord, let us see a work done in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, y'all are dismissed. I love you. We'll talk to you later.